Hey, my name's Rob, and it's great to be worshiping uh, with you this morning. I just want to start off by giving everybody an opportunity to give themselves a pat on the back, because I don't know if you realize it or not, but this morning you braved the spring break 2018 winter snowstorm event of the year to be here at church this morning, and I just want to say great job. Some of you didn't even get up early enough to know that. There was snow on the ground. That's cool. Uh, Welcome, and we're so glad that you're here. I'm ready for the weather to pick something, and I grew up in Virginia, so I know you can experience all four seasons in one day or in a few hours in Virginia, and I get that, but I'm ready for spring, although I have allergies, so I'm kind of more ready for summer. Summer, I love summer growing up. There was a week or sometimes two weeks put together that I got to go spend time with my grandparents. No sister, no parents just me and my grandparents. There's a lot of reasons I enjoy doing that. One of the reasons was, uh, one of the first things that we would do is we'd go to the grocery store, and my grandparents would say, pick out anything you want, which is an amazing start to the week, just, just that. Long summer evenings, we got to hang out in the valley, in the mountains. We'd ride bikes. Uh, my grandfather would take me to go play golf or, or kind of walk with him as he's playing golf with his, his, uh, his brother. Uh, so many great moments of nostalgia that I think of when I think about those, those times. So one of the things that was cool was in the evening, at the end of a long summer day, just chilling, watching TV, my grandparents had cable. See, we didn't have cable. I uh, still don't have cable, actually. I uh, never have had cable in my life. And my grandparents did, however, and that was cool because I got to see things that I didn't normally get to see. There's that one time that Alien was on the TV, and I couldn't look at spaghetti the same way uh, from that point on for quite a while. But that's not exactly the type of stuff that was, was typically the case. My grandparents had this channel called Nickelodeon, and on Nickelodeon there was Nick at Night. You thought I was going to say something else, didn't you? But Nick at Night was awesome, and I loved it. I looked at what the current lineup for Nick at Night is, and it's a little surreal because just the stuff that I grew up watching on normal TV. uh, Anyway, uh, back then when I was watching it, they had stuff like Mr. Ed, you know, the talking horse, the famous Mr. Ed. I Love Lucy, I Dream of Jeannie, Bewitched, The Dick Van Dyke Show, like a bunch of great stuff that you've never heard of you should check out. But my favorite show out of all of those was a show called Get Smart. Anybody feeling me? You know what I'm talking about? All right, actually, First Service knew a little bit more about Get Smart. So you guys, uh, you need to check out Get Smart. You need to go get the first season and watch it. It was a great TV show. It came out in 1965. It was James Bond meets Mel Brooks. Mel Brooks was one of, some of you know Mel Brooks. All right, Mel Brooks was one of the creators of the show, and it was fantastic. I loved it. It followed the exploits of the bumbling secret agent Maxwell Smart, Agent 86. Uh, and it was amazing, and there were so many great moments. And it actually, they kind of changed the scope of TV comedy with that show. They broke a lot of barriers down in, in being funny, which I know may sound weird. But there are a lot of gags, r- running catchphrases and stuff that were part of the show. One of the things is um, Maxwell Smart had a shoe phone, which was hilarious. He'd be sitting in the middle of a meeting or a concert or, you know, or a stakeout or something like that, and a shoe would be ringing, so he'd have to go answer it and all that kind of stuff. It was really funny. But one of the things that he would say is, inevitably, he would be caught by the bad guys. All right, So whatever supervillain was there for that week, they would catch him because he would make some sort of mistake, and he'd get in trouble, and then he was trying to get out of it. And when he was trying to get out of it, he would say this phrase, would you believe? And the reason he was doing that, he was trying to convince them that he had backup on the way. 
So for example, Maxwell Smart is on a boat with Agent 99, who's always there like trying to help him along, but he never really pays attention. And Maxwell gets trapped. He gets captured by the bad guy. They take him inside the boat, and he said, would you believe that before you captured me, I sent back you know, information to the agency of where you were, and there are seven Coast Guard cutters on their way to rescue us and rescue you right now. And the bad guy inevitably would say, I don't think so. And then he would say, would you believe six? And they would say, I doubt that very much. And then Maxwell Smart would always say something along the lines of, would you believe two cops in a rowboat? You know, and it can kind of continue going. And with a laugh track, it's amazing. So you can imagine, like, <laughs> pretend like people are laughing at this point and they think it's funny. It was great. I loved it. And it was always this, this moment where you knew, it's kind of a wink-wink, nudge-nudge moment between the show and the audience, that you knew Maxwell had done it again. He'd gotten himself in trouble, and he wasn't going to get out of it. At that point, he's just trying to figure out how gullible the bad guy really is to see if they would believe him. I think my kids uh, think that I'm like that sometimes. You know, they, they think that maybe he's just trying to see how gullible we are when they really don't want to listen to anything I tell them or think that they can trust and believe that what I tell them is true. Uh, we've met people and even become friends with them later on when initially you were a little bit suspicious of who they were. Like, are they really putting up like this? Are they kind of putting up a front? And then later we finally discovered, no, that, like they're really a decent, decent person. And it's all because somewhere along the way, We've all had experiences that have led us to doubt. We've all experienced that somewhere. With Maxwell Smart, he had developed a well-earned reputation for bad guys to doubt him because he always got himself in this position. The reason my kids doubt is because they want to operate in the way they want to, and they don't want their desired experience to be intruded upon by their loving mother and father. The reason we wonder about other people's motivations is because we've all been burned before. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. And we don't ever want to experience that again. By the way, there's a side note to that too. One of the reasons we question other people's motivations is because we have given people reasons to question our motivations. And that's why we're so familiar with that feeling. Mm-hmm. So when we come to something as pivotal as religion, and more specifically belief in God, and even more specifically that God reveals himself through the word made flesh in Jesus Christ, it's only natural that we might experience doubt in our faith journey along the way. It's the natural inclination in a fallen world to have this experience. We have all had religion some sort of religious experience that probably has earned our doubt at some point in our life. Or maybe more specifically with Christianity, we've had experiences where it seems to intrude upon our desired experience, and so we'll doubt. Or perhaps more often than it ever should have, have than it should ever happen is that we've experienced Christians not living in a Christ-like manner that's caused doubt. And when we hear, experience, and are confronted with something that challenges our knowledge and experience up to that point, it makes sense to doubt. It's a totally natural reaction for people who admit that they aren't perfect to do so and that they don't know everything to do so. That's why it's important to me that we're a place where no perfect people are allowed. And I want you to know if you never felt this way or ever heard this expressly stated in this way that you can feel free to doubt here. 
And here's why that's important. Even if you've gone through your entire life and in your faith and have never doubted once, I mean, that's amazing and that's something to celebrate and that's great. Most people have had an experience somewhere along the way where they have doubted, including me, by the way. I was doing a little bit of research on some statistics with Christians in doubt and discovered along the way that uh, one of the first steps that people uh, typically take is, is not going and talking to their pastor or whoever their spiritual leader in their context is in that way. In fact, it's pretty far down on, on the totem pole as far as first reactions that people take when they deal with doubt in their lives. And I think maybe it's because people assume that how could someone who does what you do ever have experienced doubt in their life before? And I just want to let you know, I've been there, I've done that, and I expect that it will happen again. So I'm always up for comparing notes sometime, if, if you'd like, when it comes to doubt. And perhaps that seems like too cavalier of an attitude to have, as I know that doubt sometimes creates some very difficult seasons in our life, sometimes very dark, and sometimes seems to cause seems to cause irreparable damage to our faith. But I think that's only because, really, we have a poor relationship with doubt. And we're going to talk about that this morning. Here's the first thing I'll say, is that doubt is not a destination. It's not a destination. It's just a step to a faith-defining moment. There's a period of time in my life several years ago when the only reason that I went to church was for the benefit of my wife and my kids. That's the only reason I was going. And this is coming from someone who, even at the time, was a, sometimes I get it called a vocational Christian, right? And the way that I moved through that and the experience in that time was for me to wrestle with and realize that the events that had led to that moment and those moments were the things that God used to deconstruct my own flawed expectations and the flawed experiences that I'd had as a result of other people to prepare me for where I needed to go next and what ultimately led to and continues to lead to as I move through doubt in other areas of life to a more deeply rooted faith. In my utmost first highest, Oswald Chambers writes, always make a practice to stir your own mind thoroughly to think through what you have easily believed. Your position is not really yours until you make it yours through suffering and study. And so the reason I think it's important to identify that doubt is not the destination is had I not acknowledged that I need to, needed to move through this period of suffering and study in my life uh, to remind myself of the foundation of my faith through study and the support of godly men and women, my doubt would certainly have led in a different direction. But that direction that it led into wouldn't have been honest without that suffering and study process. Doubt is not the destination. It can feel like it is sometimes, but it's always leading somewhere to something. The easiest thing to do would be to drift along and allow the doubt and that emotion and that mood at that time to guide us and direct us and take it where it will, just like we do with most other moods and unplanned emotions. But an emotionally driven faith isn't what God expects from us. In James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8, James writes this. He says, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. 
That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. And what James is explaining here is someone who stops when doubt comes in and thinks, well, now that's done it and ruined everything from here on in. Doubt is not the destination. Just before James has said this, the test, that's testing of our faith produces perseverance, and that when we allow perseverance to complete its work, maturity and completeness come. That's what he says in the verses right preceding before this. Doubt is not the destination. When it is, we just get tossed around all over the place on emotional whims, but when we deal with the testing of our faith head on, our doubts can lead to a more mature and more complete faith. So for me, one of the most freeing passages in the New Testament when it comes to seasons of doubt that I've dealt with is when I discovered verse 22 in the letter of Jude. Now, this is some of you are like, hey, Jude, what's, you know, what's going on here? There's this letter. I don't even know why I said that. I didn't do that in first service. That was dumb. Hopefully, hopefully we're not recording this one. All right. Uh, so Jude is, in, is a letter in the New Testament. It's only 25 verses long. And most of the time, we don't know it's there because we're skipping it too fast to get to the book of Revelation. It's Jude, then Revelation. And in verse 22 of Jude, uh, Jude writes these words, Be merciful to those who doubt. Let me, let me break out and read a little bit of the context of what Jude is talking about when he writes these words. He says, But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, I keep, keep yourselves, not I keep, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Be merciful to those who doubt. There's a reason that James and Jude both include the topic of doubt in their letters. James and Jude have a history with doubt. They're brothers of each other. But what makes them really stick out is the fact that they're both the half-brothers of Jesus. So when James and Jude talk about doubt, they're talking about it from personal experience. I don't know if you can imagine whether or not, you know, one of your siblings was Jesus growing up. Like if I had gone up to my sister and I said, I'm your Lord and Savior, Rob, you know, I don't think she would react all that well to that. I'm sure she would doubt those words if I were to say them to her. And so James and Jude grew up not really understanding who Jesus was. In fact, in Mark chapter 3, Jesus had started teaching and had a bunch of crowds starting to follow him. He selected his 12 innermost closest disciples to follow him as he shared with them, and they went out to share with other people. And they said, Jesus has lost his mind. They came with his mother and, and their sisters to come get Jesus and to bring him back home because they thought he was crazy. Pre-resurrection, James and Jude totally doubted who Jesus was. They were very familiar with this, with this feeling. It wasn't until after the resurrection that they became believers themselves. And so as Jesus, as Jude is writing this letter of encouragement to be guarded against those who would lead Christ's followers astray, he calls for mercy for those he knows will experience doubt along the way. And he doesn't do this just from his own personal experience of doubt. He's also able to say this. Because he's seen Jesus show mercy to his own disciples who have doubted along the way as well. 
The two most famous examples of this come from uh, two of Jesus' 12 closest disciples, Peter and Thomas. Peter has this moment in Matthew chapter 14 where Jesus is walking out to the disciples on the water. Perhaps you've heard this story before, and it's stormy, and he's walking out, and Peter sees Jesus and says, man, this is a great opportunity to walk on the water. So he says, Jesus, can I come out to you? And Jesus says, sure, it's great, come on in. And so Peter does so, and he starts to walk toward Jesus, and then he starts to look around at all the waves and the wind and the storm that's happening around him. Perhaps James had some specific example in mind when he describes doubt as being tossed by the waves of the sea. Anyway, Peter does this. He starts to look around, and in that moment, he sinks. And in Matthew chapter 14, verse 31, after Peter has says, Lord, save me, and he cries out for salvation in this moment of desperation, Jesus immediately reaches out his hand to Peter, pulls him up, and he says, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? And I think Peter, if he were given a chance to kind of put a, a little note in the margin, if he were given a chance to think about it honestly, would say, well, for a moment, I believe that the power of the things going on around me was greater than the one who was with me. And I think oftentimes that's when doubt starts to come in. Because all the events and circumstances and circumstances and the experience that we have surround us start to take our attention away from the one who is with us. And the times that we experience this, it can seem like God couldn't be further away, but in the midst of our doubt, Jesus is there and he is reaching out to us. Now, I think the story would have gone over a lot better and it would have been a lot more funny if he had let Peter just kind of flounder a little bit while he's there. You know, he's in the water, he's standing right next to him. He, he can get him any time and just like, all right, Peter, I'm, I'm just going to, you know, you doubted me and come on, man, I'll let you walk on water. You're the only guy who, other than me who's ever going to do this in life. And yet you didn't believe and you started sinking. So I'm, I'm going to let you sweat it out just a little bit longer. No, but he didn't do that. There's no punitive response here. Immediately. In response to Peter's cry for salvation, Jesus responds. And it may feel like, in the midst of doubt, that there isn't a whole lot happening, but the reality is, is that God already knows when it's going to come for us, and he's already been preparing a path for us to lead us through that. And at the end of it comes a, more, a stronger and a more deeply rooted faith. For Thomas, Thomas, he kind of gets a bad rap because we call him, call him Doubting Thomas. We have this phrase that we ascribe to him. And really, Thomas, all he wanted was the same thing everybody else got to see. So Thomas wasn't hanging out with the disciples when Jesus shows up the first time, probably because, like everybody else, he thought it was all over. At this point, Jesus was dead. He thought, man, all the things that Jesus taught, all the things that he called us to, I'm sure this is... This is over with at this point, so why bother spending any time, any more time with his followers? And so he was gone, he had walked away, and then his followers experienced the resurrection of Jesus. And so the disciples went to Thomas and said, you'll never believe, no really, you'll never, you'll never believe what just happened. We saw the risen Jesus. We spoke with him. We saw the nail prints in his hands. We saw the hole in his side from the spear that he was stuck with. And Thomas says, man... That's great and all, but unless I see the nail prints, unless I touch the hole in his side, I'm not going to believe. 
a response that I think most of us have considered or had before at some point in our life, or at least have talked with someone else who certainly has that concern and response in their life. But there's something that happens for Thomas because a week later he shows up, he's with the disciples, and I think what's going on is that Thomas starts to put what he thinks he knows and has experienced together with what the disciples are telling him. In John chapter 20, verse 27 through 29, Thomas is there hanging out with the disciples a week later, and Jesus shows up in their midst. And he says to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas says to him, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. See, I don't think Thomas makes an unreasonable request here to see and experience Jesus, but it's also something that identifies what we have to deal with as a result of a sin-ridden and broken world. Asking this question is like, can I really believe this thing that this person is talking about? Because in a perfect world, in a world that's not broken by sin, we would be able to trust, there wouldn't be this selective morality that we have to deal with that causes doubt in our lives. We would be able to trust that when somebody else tells us something, that it is true. But Jesus doesn't reject Thomas because he doubted. If he did, he'd have to reject all of his followers. At some point, all the disciples dealt with doubt. Even in Matthew chapter 28, verse 17, right before Jesus is about to leave to go to heaven to prepare a place for us, he's appeared to 500 disciples at this point, and some still doubted. Instead of Jesus responding that as, a, okay, you're out, you doubted me, and so there's no way we can move beyond this in our relationship, he shows up so that Thomas can experience the resurrection too. So the path through doubt comes from knowledge and experience. It's not just about what we know about God and can answer on tests and give facts about, about him because we've read the Bible and we've studied theology and intellectually we can deal with the topic of who God is. It also, becomes, it also comes from our experience and what he did through the resurrection. See, knowing God in Scripture doesn't just respond or doesn't just come from cognitive knowledge of who God is. It also comes from relational knowledge, an intimate relationship with God with us. So how can those who have not seen yet believe? It's because they've experienced the Word made flesh in their own lives. You think about what Jesus does after the resurrection. He doesn't go around all the people who didn't believe before and prove the haters wrong. That's not what he spends time doing. He spends time encouraging the people who did trust in him and did have faith and yet were struggling in those, moment and re- in those moments and wrestling with, with doubt. How often do you and I spend so much time and energy on what we do as a response to the people who don't believe in us, right? How many times do we do things that are in response to our haters when reality we have people in our lives that are ready to keep going, who love and support us? But Jesus is there for those who are wrestling with their faith. He shows up to Mary 
who's in the garden by herself crying to God over what has happened, he shows up to her. He shows up to the two disciples walking along the road who are trying to make sense of what has happened. He shows up to the group of the disciples who are in a locked room. He shows up to Thomas and exposes his scars. He shows up to the disciples on the beach cooking breakfast for them as they're seeking their own provision. And he shows up in the reinstatement of Peter as he repents for the weakness of his faith. See, in the midst of our doubt, Jesus makes his presence known as we cry out to him. In the midst of our doubt, Jesus shows up as we lean on that godly friend who is walking through life with us. In the midst of doubt, Jesus shows up as we seek encouragement from that godly small group of people that you have surrounded yourself with. He shows up in the scars, our scars, that at one point caused death in our lives but now show resurrection. He shows up in the moments in which we serve and are served by others. And he shows up when we recognize that the way through doubt is to trust that he is bigger than it. That even when we go through it, he still shows up. And he's still ready there, reaching out with open arms for us. Feel free to doubt because your faith is defined not only about what you know, but also what you learn along the way and experience as we exercise our faith. On the other side of doubt is a more deeply rooted and a more fully lived faith. So here's, here's my encouragement to you. It's not that you will never experience a moment of doubt, of doubt and have to deal with something in your faith and experience it. What, what my encouragement to you is, and maybe it's something that you need to do for the first time this week, is just share. It's to not go through it alone. It's to share it with someone else. Even in the moment where you feel like maybe you don't, aren't able to talk to God about it, talk to someone who is willing and able to talk to God about it. There's a godly man or a godly woman in your life. Could be me could be someone who's sitting next to you, could be somebody else in your life who is ready and willing to hear your doubt and to walk through it with you. So do it this week. Don't keep it to yourself any longer. Feel free to doubt. If you aren't doubting right now, or maybe you're in a place in your life where it's like, man, I don't know that I've ever really experienced, I'm, I'm not even sure if I connect with this. I don't, I don't know that I've ever experienced doubt. And there are some people in my life where I can point to and say, man, they have, they have been a rock solid person of faith for me uh, through life. Here's my encouragement to you, is that you know somebody in your life who does doubt. You interact with people in your life, much less than don't, don't believe. Be the person who shows mercy to those who doubt. Be the person who is willing to walk alongside the person who is doubting. Be the one who's willing to be hospitable to others so that they can have a place to come and to live out and talk through and experience their faith together with you. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you for um, the fact that what you invite us to 
invite us into is not just something based on a whim. It's not based on a fleeting emotion, but it's based on something that we can learn about, that we can have knowledge of, and something that we can experience, something that we can put into practice, even, even test, to see that, man, what you have said is true. And God, I ask that as we maybe personally wrestle with doubt, or as we interact with those who do, I, I just ask that you guide us with your Holy Spirit in our conversations, that we are willing not to try to come up with all the answers, not that we're trying to fix everything for someone, but that we're simply willing to be in relationship with them so that we can experience the resurrection in our life. God, we thank you for walking with us as we move through the more difficult seasons of our life. God, we thank you for Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection, for taking care of our belief and our unbelief. God, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.